Fist is back, all right. Oh my God, we're back again. Welcome, dissidents. The Twitterverse has spoken. In a poll posted by Casey Maddox, you all voted for the cases that should be at the top of the Supreme Court's chopping block when it comes to overturning precedent. We're down to the final four, and we hosted a mini-debate. Which one should win? I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. A few weeks ago, Casey Maddox from Americans for Prosperity started a Sweet 16-style bracket to let people on the internet decide which case is most deserving of being overturned by the Supreme Court. We invited four experts to give two-minute arguments for why their preferred case should win. And by win, we mean be overturned. You would be surprised at how difficult it is to get lawyers to keep it short, but we did our best. The rules of the game? Elizabeth and I will introduce the case, and each advocate has two minutes to make their best argument. Without further ado, let's get ready to rumble! First up, Chevron USA Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council, better known as Chevron Deference. This 1984 case involved a challenge to the EPA's construction of the term stationary sources in the Clean Air Act. The Supreme Court infamously held that when a statute is ambiguous, judges are bound to uphold an agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute it is charged with carrying out. It's perhaps the most famous case in administrative law, and one the Supreme Court decided with not one, not two, but three justices not participating, William Rehnquist and Thurgood Marshall out for health reasons, and Sandra Day O'Connor because she had a financial stake in a company involved in the case. Arguing that Chevron deserves to be overruled is PLF's own legal policy director, Daniel Dew. He's helped persuade state legislators to advance legislation eliminating their state court versions of Chevron. Here's Daniel. This case really goes to the heart of the separation of powers. And I'm going to steal a talking point from Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch have adopted. You know, the Bill of Rights gets all the glory for protecting our individual freedoms, but they're actually completely worthless without the separation of powers. The Russian Constitution actually protects the freedom of expression. And we see how what good that does when uh, the whole of government is controlled by one person or one branch of the government. So Chevron is a complete finger to the of of the separation of powers, which protects all of our freedoms and rights. Chevron delegates court authority to interpret laws to executive agencies, and it implicitly blesses Congress delegating its lawmaking authority to unaccountable government bureaucrats. Uh, Chevron deference basically tells Lady Justice, when a person's life, liberty, or property is at stake, peek from behind your blindfold, put a finger on the scale in favor of the most powerful party in the country, the federal government. Chevron deference means that so long as an agency's interpretation of enabling statute isn't unreasonable, the government wins. The government's position doesn't have to be the right interpretation of the law. It doesn't have to be the best interpretation of the law. It just has to be not completely unreasonable. It's the court's duty to resolve cases and controversies between parties. And as recognized since Marbury versus Madison, that includes the court saying what the law is. But Chevron punts that responsibility to the very entity the statute was meant to constrain. Some will argue that because the agencies are experts in the subject matter, of the law, the courts should give deference to the agency's interpretation. But the courts are the experts in interpreting legal text, 
which is the real question in these cases. This isn't a policy debate where the court has to choose what's the better policy, what should the policy be. The question is whether the agency has acted outside the bounds of what the statute allows. And because the question is over the enabling statute, what this really does is it gives the agency its authority. And by deferring to the agency, the court is allowing the agency to decide how much power that agency has. So what it really does is it incentivizes Congress to write these broad, vague statutes, and it incentivizes the agencies to stake out these broad constructions of the statutes to enlarge their power as much as possible. And that's why Chevron should be overturned. This is pretty timely, actually, because I was on Instagram yesterday and I saw that my friend had posted that he was actually in New London, Connecticut, and he just posted the words, if you know, you know. And I know, I think, I think most constitutional attorneys and maybe anyone who's gone to law school knows that name because it's burned into our brains. The story of how the city of New London, Connecticut stole a woman's little pink house and sold it to private developers for purposes of economic development. Under the Fifth Amendment, the government can engage in what's called eminent domain. That is, it can take people's private property for, quote, public use so long as it pays just compensation. And the question in Kilo was what constitutes public use. The Supreme Court ruled that public use doesn't mean actual physical use necessarily, like a park or a public building, nor does it even really mean public benefit. It can mean private benefit that might eventually result in things like a larger tax base or more jobs. So my friend was posting from New London, Connecticut to show the sad coda of the story, which is that The rejuvenation project has been an utter failure. Despite spending close to $80 million in taxpayer money, the construction never began and the entire neighborhood is an empty field. It's a very sad story. And so we have Professor Ilya Soman here, a professor of law at George Mason University and author of The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain. Professor Soman, tell us why in two minutes, Kilo should be at the top of the chopping block when it comes to cases that should be overturned. Kilo is a very bad decision uh, because it just simply got the meaning of public use badly wrong. There has been a debate going back now 200 years over whether public use means only something which is either a government-owned project, like a road, for example, or a private institution that has a legal duty to serve the general public. That's the narrow view of public use. There is also the broad view of public use embraced by the Supreme Court in Kilo, which says that a public use can be virtually anything that might provide a public benefit of some kind. And as in Kilo itself, the government doesn't even have to prove that the supposed benefit will actually be realized. And to make a long story short, if you look back in the 1790s, when the Fifth Amendment was first enacted, or in 1868, when it became applicable to the states, the large majority of jurists uh, and courts and the like at both periods thought that something like the narrow view of public use was correct. The narrow view is also more linguistically intuitive uh, if you believe that the Constitution should be interpreted in a way that ordinary people understand it. If you're not an originalist, there's still good reason to oppose Kilo. Uh, Many living constitutionalists will say we should interpret the constitutional rights in a way that protects the poor, the disadvantaged minorities, those who don't have much of a say in the political process. And when you allow the government to take property for private interests, it is in fact usually the poor, the disadvantaged minorities who suffer. That's what happened in Kilo itself. Relatively politically weak people were harmed for the benefit of Pfizer Inc., a major corporation 
population. And historically, many hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced by these kinds of takings, mostly poor and minorities. I would add that uh, Kilo is one of the rare Supreme Court decisions where the author of the majority opinion, Justice John Paul Stevens, later admitted that he made what he called an embarrassing to acknowledge error. That is, he badly misinterpreted precedent. If you want to know exactly how, you can read my book. Uh, so there's lots of reason for overturning Kilo, but I have to admit, it's not entirely clear to me that Kilo is necessarily worse than at least two of the other fine candidates which are still in the running. I'm not sure it's worse than Wickard versus Filburn or Spotterhouse. In all three cases, it depends to some extent on whether you overrule the decision in question in a broad way that would have a big real world effect or whether you can overrule it in a narrow way. Well, that's music to my ears. The author of the book on Kilo saying that maybe Slaughterhouse should be overturned even more because I am team Slaughterhouse all the way. Next up is Wickard v. Filburn. This 1942 case involved a farmer who was fined for growing too much wheat for consumption on his farm. The New Deal-era Agricultural Adjustment Act limited wheat production by acreage in an effort to stabilize wheat prices. The farmer challenged this in court, arguing that since his wheat had not been on the market, it couldn't be regulated by the federal government. The Commerce Clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, if you want to check it out, limits Congress's reach to regulating commerce, quote, among the several states. But in Wickard, the Supreme Court unanimously held Congress could regulate commerce that has a substantial relation to interstate commerce. This significantly expanded Congress's power, and as they say, the rest is history. Arguing that Wickard should be at the top of the court's chopping block is Volokh conspirator and South Texas College of Law professor Josh Blackman. Here's Josh. This year, Wickard v. Filburn turned 80 years old, and that should be its last birthday. This decision obliterated virtually every limit on federal power. This case held that even if wheat is grown on your farm and never leaves the farm, and you have no intent to sell it, it is still within the ambit of the federal government to regulate. And Wickard gave us such disastrous decisions as Gonzalez versus Rach. You see, you sweep out Wickard and everything falls from underneath it. Uh, we should restore the original meaning of the Commerce Clause and the necessary proper clause. If Congress wants to regulate something, let it be actual commerce among the several states. And the mere fact that a regulation of local economic activity might help the federal government achieve some national end does not augment Congress's powers. For these reasons, Wickard v. Filburn should be and ought to be overruled. The case was egregiously wrong when it was decided, and I cannot stand the stench of that case one more day. Let's separate the wheat from the chaff and overrule Wickard. Kilo, Chevron, Slaughterhouse are all egregious decisions, and they warrant overruling as soon as practicable. But the decision that would have the quickest, most profound effect on all of our lives is Wickard. The states largely are in charge of eminent domain. The due process clause is largely taking the place of the privileges or immunities clause. And we really want this DC circuit to be operating without the Chevron doctrine, come on. So given these facts, Wickard, farewell. Here to argue that Slaughterhouse should be at the top of the list is Clark Neely, Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. Slaughterhouse is a case famous for dealing with, or one might even say slaughtering, the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Louisiana passed a law requiring all butchers to do their butchering at a private slaughterhouse, effectively establishing a monopoly for that business and putting smaller slaughterhouses out of business. A group of butchers argued that the law infringed their right to earn a livelihood under the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, and the Supreme Court held that the clause only protects those laws that inherit from federal citizenship 
effectively neutering the clause altogether. This case is famous because the court so badly got things wrong. The decision is contradicted by the purpose of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was to broadly protect civil rights after former slave states refused to protect the rights of free Blacks. And it's pretty clear now, I think uh, scholars agree, that the clause was not only intended to protect those rights in the Bill of Rights, but also natural and common law rights inherent to all free people. So this case has not been remedied, even though everyone agrees it's a big mistake. Clark, take it away and tell us why it's the biggest mistake and should be overturned above all other cases. In a sea of horrific Supreme Court decisions that are intellectually and morally indefensible, Slaughterhouse emerges hands down as the champion, worst case of all time. Here's why. There were two really important questions at issue in Slaughterhouse as pertains to the 14th Amendment, the most important amendment in the Constitution. First question, was the 14th Amendment designed to effect a minor reallocation of power between federal and state governments or a major one? The Supreme Court's answer in Slaughterhouse, minor. False, it was supposed to be major. Second question, does the Constitution properly understood protect unenumerated rights, meaning rights that are not specifically articulated in the text of the Constitution? Answer, yes, according to the Supreme Court, well, maybe. False, the 14th Amendment was designed to reallocate power from state governments to the federal government when it comes to the protection of natural rights, including ones that are not fully enumerated in the text of the Constitution. It is impossible to get those questions more wrong than the Slaughterhouse case got them. And it's I think it's impossible to imagine anything more consequential. Now, some people will say Wickard because Wickard is the case that essentially opened the door to plenary federal power, where now the federal government government wields a police power that was never conferred upon it by the Constitution. Yes, that was a big deal. Here's why Wickard is not as important a case to overrule. Imagine that Wickard represents the leg of a stool and you're thinking, oh, if we can just kick this leg out, the whole thing will topple. But what if it turns out it doesn't? What if there's been such an accretion you know, of mud and muck and rock and stuff under the stool that it stands up without that leg? You get rid of Wickard and I guarantee you every single one of the 150 to 300 federal agencies components and units that exist the day before you reverse Wickard will continue to exist the day after you get rid of Wickard. Why? Because members of the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court, are endlessly creative when it comes up coming comes to coming up with ways to rationalize the existence of federal power where the court where the Constitution doesn't confer it. Take away Wickard, they'll find five other tools to achieve the same end. Initiate an honest discussion about the status of unenumerated rights in this country, which we have not had since the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868, and you are talking revolution in constitutional law. Overrule Slaughterhouse, let Wickard go, and we're on the road to freedom. Dissidents, you've heard the arguments. Now it's time to vote. Go check out Casey's Final Four poll. You can find him on Twitter at Casey Maddox, M-A-T-T-O-X underscore. And for the record, the Dist podcast does not endorse his restrictive view on when it's appropriate to listen to Christmas music. Thanks to our guests, Ilya, Daniel, Josh, and Clark. And as always, thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd appreciate your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out Dist. Do we want to try Let's Get Ready to Rumble? No, we have so many versions of that. Yeah, and they're all bad. So many bad versions. Okay.
Let's get ready, get ready to rumble. rumble. That was pretty good. That was pretty good.